You see it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, hope everyone's well. Why don't we just uh, get going then? Uh, I'll uh, I'll talk a little bit, uh, not as much as last week, but still a little bit, and then uh, uh, we'll have more discussion tonight. Hopefully, uh, tonight we can start getting a little bit more into some things. So uh, why don't we get going then? So last week, uh, we focused a lot more on the context. And uh, yeah, I think Paul, you can go next slide. Yeah, so we talked about the context of the Galatians, uh, context of our society that's uh, rooted in uh, this concept uh, called white normativity. Uh, we discussed uh, a place of model minorities in this context of Canada. We talked about personal experiences. Uh, but today I want to delve more into the thought and message of uh, Paul. And uh, I'll just uh, mute everyone for now. Okay. Uh, so like, what was going on in his mind? You know, what was he trying to say? And uh, uh, we're going to come back and relate that to our current context in Toronto. Uh, we'll explore some concrete examples of how race um, plays out in our own geographic context. And we'll try to relate and connect Paul's story and message to this context. So my hope is that delving into Galatians and examining our geographic context will raise some critical questions about uh, what faith means in our concrete context and about our calling as individuals and as a church in a kind of a racialized society and context. So Paul's prior motivation in life. Uh, I mean, if most of you may know by now that Paul, if anything, was a very serious man, right? He took his life seriously. And for him as a devoted Jew, uh, he took most seriously uh, living a life worthy of God's favor. Uh, his innermost desire was to live a good life that God would look upon with approval. Uh, he adopted the Jewish belief that God's favor was bestowed upon the righteous, um, and for him, as well as many other Jews, righteousness uh, belonged to those who obeyed and followed God's law, uh, the Torah, with their whole being. And uh, Psalm 119 reflects this desire for righteousness. Um, Happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Happy are those who keep his decrees, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong. And that's just the introduction. The whole psalm goes, it's, it's about love for the law, God's law and God's way. I mean, it's a very beautiful psalm in many ways. And Paul internalized this model with his whole heart. And this is what he says in Galatians. I advanced in Judaism beyond many among my people of the same age, for I was far more zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. And now I'm not, we're not going to read through all of chapters one and two, but I'm going to just assume you've read it. But if not, that's okay, because I'm going to be quoting a lot from it. Uh, Paul believed that he was righteous because of this zeal. And based on his understanding of the law, he persecuted the church. Uh, I was violently persecuting the church of God and was trying to destroy it. So he truly believed that this new movement of the church was distorting the law of God going against everything he believed. And there are two possible reasons for this. Uh, one was that uh, worshiping someone who's crucified and hung as a criminal was a grotesque affront to the Jewish law. No one who was killed in this manner could be the Messiah. 
and also the openness of the church to Gentiles, and in particular, welcoming them without requiring them to become full Jews. It went against the very grain of the Jewish people as a, a people chosen and set apart by God. Uh, but somewhere along the line, and Acts says it was on the road to Damascus, Paul had a life-changing encounter, and he calls this a revelation from God. Uh, uh, okay, there's no slide. That's fine. Um, and this revelation, he received uh, this gospel. Um, For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was proclaimed to me is not of human origin, for I did not receive it from a human source, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Christ. Okay? And furthermore, uh, but when God was pleased to reveal his son to me. So this whole concept of a revelation was very important. And this, because this revelation is what shattered his belief system. And it fundamentally altered how Paul saw things. And it completely changed his life. And so what was this revelation? Uh, this revelation was that God does not grant favor to those deemed righteous by the Jewish law uh, that he had dedicated himself to. Uh, but rather, God's favor is now granted to all regardless of the worth of that person. So in other words, even those who were deemed unrighteous in terms of the law were now granted God's favor. Okay. Previously, uh, only those who fully obeyed and followed the Jewish law were deemed righteous, and only the righteous could get God's favor. But now, God's favor is given uh, regardless of one's standing or worth. Okay, uh, let me uh, ex explicate this a little bit more. Um, Paul's letters are replete with the language associated with gift. I think that's the next slide. <laughs> Gifts. So, the most common word uh, that we see in Paul's letter is uh, grace and or charis in Greek and charis, which is uh, Ruth's daughter's name, right? Grace is one word to describe the language of gift that Paul uses a lot. But in our contemporary Western conception of gift, it's very different uh, from how it was conceived of for Paul back then uh, and his contemporaries. We think of kind of gift almost as something we give to someone else uh, without any strings attached, uh, expecting nothing in return. Uh, in other words, like a pure gift. Um, uh, and I think we value that this kind of gift because it kind of has no ulterior motive or no agenda. And uh, modern charity is kind of like that, right? You know, I just want to give without expectation of anything in return. It's not all a bad thing, uh, but this that conception of gift, it's a one-way uh, stream with no expectation of anything else in return. But the language of gift that Paul uses was a, kind of a very different idea. Uh, a gift was not given without any expectation. There was some expectation. And um, this expectation, a gift was given for the purpose of building a relationship with the recipient. Okay. Now, that's the purpose of a gift, to build a relationship with someone. The gift itself might be way bigger than what the recipient could return, but that wasn't the point. Right? A gift was given to build this relationship. And so for Paul, the revelation was that God was giving this gift of God's favor in the form of his very son, Jesus Christ. 
uh, and this gift was given without regard to the worth of the recipient. Okay? It didn't matter uh, what the recipient did or didn't do um, or what their standing was. Uh, this gift was given um, for solely for the purpose of building a relationship with the recipients. And this was actually, this was the, such a radical breakthrough for Paul. I mean, even in our time, right? When we think of someone receiving a gift or a favor, uh, we often think that a gift should go to someone who deserves it. You know, even such a good friend to me, and so I'm going to give you a gift. Oh, this, you've been uh, so kind to me, I'm going to give you a gift. If someone has like just treated me disrespectfully or contemptuously, we're not going to think to go out and get them a gift usually, right? <laughs> Uh, but what Paul realized was that God wanted to give the gift of his favor so that this relationship can be built with us. And one's righteousness under the law made no difference to God. And in this sense, I mean, God's gift was so disproportionate and bigger than the worth of the recipient. But that's how much for Paul that God wanted this relationship with all people. And this desire was demonstrated in the life death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this revelation shattered all of his previous beliefs about what it took to gain Paul's, uh, God's favor. So Paul, through this revelation, saw how blinded he had been by his attachment, pre previous attachment to Jewish norms of worth. Right? He also saw how much harm that his, this zealous but sincere belief had done uh, to people. And he realized that any human criteria of worth, whether it's Jewish or any other forms, uh, has now been deprioritized compared to God's gift that is given regardless of one's worth. God loved Paul, he realized, and gave himself for him despite the harm that he had done. So what mattered now was not what any human indiv individual, community, or system uh, deemed as worthy. All that mattered was God's gift, God's grace, given without regard to one's worth. In fact, one was now to kind of die, so to speak, to those criteria of worth, worth sorry, to let them be crucified so that one could now live in a deep relationship with the one who had given this gift of favor and new life. And this was the new life, um, the new creation, to live in deep union with the one uh, who had given the gift of life to him. And this new life in Christ was to be the very ground and foundation of his whole being. Okay? So like Paul's whole, his whole life now was to take shape in Christ, to be shaped by the life of Christ and the character of Christ, and his whole being is now to be oriented to Christ, and his faith and his trust would be in Christ. So this whole motif of in Christ uh, would come to dominate Paul's thinking. Okay? In Christ, he found uh, his freedom from other criteria of worth. So this uh, new life in Christ had enormous implications for his own life and his calling. I mean, Paul first experienced awe and gratitude okay, for this grace that was given without regard to his worth. 
I mean, in fact, uh, he says in other places, he considered himself the greatest of sinners because he had inflicted so much harm on others based on his blindness, his own ideology. He experienced the transformation that came from forgiveness, from a word of gentleness, when one says, it's okay, you know, I still love you and give myself for you. Paul found his healing peace and joy. In the gift of this relationship with Christ, he became transformed by this love. And that experience of God's love, it changed his outlook. Uh, and from this love, he felt his calling. And that's what he said. But when God, who had set me apart before I was born and called me through his grace, again, that gift language, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might proclaim him among the Gentiles. Paul now realized that God's favor through the death and resurrection of Christ was now available to everyone, not only the Jews. Whether they were Jews or not Jews didn't matter anymore, and this realization changed his calling. He felt an urgent desire and need to proclaim the message of God's love to everyone so that others too could experience God's favor in this gift of relationship. I mean, he knew that the, this uh, uh, God who, of who loved everyone, was originally the God of Israel, the God who had called his ancestors. But Paul realized that this God now desired to give this gift to all people. And uh, this was the true revelation. And this revelation transformed Paul as a person, and it gave him his calling. So one thing I was wondering is, uh, I wonder how many of us have experienced this kind of revelation in our life? Because right? uh, through this revelation, faith, and calling became real things for Paul. Now, are they real for us? So some questions I, I thought about, and I'll add this later in, uh, altogether, are what are the norms or criteria of worth by which I've lived? Have I ever experienced a revelation from God about God's gift of love given to me without regard for my worth? If so, how has that affected my life, my outlook, and even my sense of calling? Okay. We'll, put, we'll post all this in the chat uh, thing later. So I just wanted to get us thinking a little bit. But I'm going to move on for now. So how did, how did this Paul's transformation play out in his real life? And what lessons can we draw from it? Um, after Paul received his revelation and calling to proclaim Christ among the Gentiles, he did a very interesting thing. Uh, this is what he says. But when God, who had set me apart before I was born and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might proclaim him among the Gentiles, I did not confer with any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were already apostles before me. But I went away at once into Arabia, and afterwards I returned to Damascus. You know, at this time, the church was still very young. You know, the original disciples of Jesus were still alive and centered in Jerusalem. I mean, these guys were the acknowledged pillars of the church, right? They were giants. They were revered, and they were all thoroughly Jewish. All of the authority among followers of Jesus was centered in Jerusalem and all the norms of Christian practice emanated from Jerusalem. But this guy, Paul, he didn't go to Jerusalem. 
He went straight to the Gentile regions where there were no established norms for Christian thought and practice. And he went solely with this good news that in Christ, all could receive God's grace without regard to their worth. They didn't need to be Jews of any certain moral character. They could all receive this gift of God's grace and enter into relationship with this God. These Gentile regions were the margins of the new community of followers of Jesus. It was in these marginal regions where Paul's theology and practice of communal life took shape. His thinking and his theology expanded beyond just Jewish thinking. In his interactions, uh, sharing life together and struggling with them, Paul built communities built on new norms. The norm of a life where everyone receives God's grace without regard to their worth. Think about it, for 17 years he spent time in these Gentile areas. You know, he said he only went up to Jerusalem twice, once after three years, and then after another 14 years. That's a long time, right? Think about that. Long time he spent in these Gentile regions away from the center of uh, this new community, Christian community's norms. He did not defer to any human norms that were being built in Jerusalem. Because remember, think about it. These human disciples were very influential and powerful, right? Authoritative. Um, but without all this time that Paul spent with the Gentiles, I don't think that Christian thinking would have expanded much beyond its Jewish roots. It was this time forged with them that really shaped his thinking and expanded the gospel to all the nations. So much so that those in Jerusalem eventually agreed uh, that God's favor in Christ is given to all without regard for worth. And they don't need to abide by pre-existing norms, such as circumcision, which was uh, a huge uh, mark, uh, norm in Jewish life, right? It was a central tenet of their law. So from Jewish norms to Christ-centered norms. So that agreement, that compromise, which is in Galatians 2, uh, it was quite tenuous though, right? Well, there's a story of uh, Peter and Antioch. When Peter went up to Antioch, which was Paul's base of operations at the time, uh, it was a mixed Jewish and Gentile community, right? Peter used to eat with them. Um, Peter relinquished his Jewish norms of belief and behavior for the sake of unity and community with these Gentiles. He didn't require those Gentiles to be like Jews nor to become Jews, right? But rather in Christ, they could be themselves because in Christ, there were no human imposed norms. Uh, and the other Jews that were there, they followed Peter's lead. But then uh, Galatians 2 says, some people came from a more, I guess, conservative faction from Jerusalem. Uh, and uh, they, that faction had held on to Jewish norms. Uh, and for Paul, that's fine. Uh, holding on to Jewish norms in and of itself is fine. But when these Jewish norms became a source of division in the community, that's when Paul got really angry. Uh, when Peter felt pressure, uh, that's right, this is how Paul recounts it, right? Until certain people came from James in Jerusalem, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But after they came, he drew back and kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision faction, right? Peter had felt pressured 
to go back to Jewish norms, which meant separating himself from the Gentiles. And then the other Jews like followed his lead because this is Peter, he's a giant, right? And so there was division. Drew back, right? kept himself separate and fear. I don't know, there's something about difference, I think, that instills fear in us, right? So the fear of difference, you know, there's different norms, images of different values, different lifestyles. We see this in the media all the time, right? Difference is often portrayed as or considered negative or dangerous. There's fear of the other and fear of the unknown others. I mean, it wasn't this really the issue that was at stake here in Antioch. In order to get rid of their fear, what the circumcision faction was really saying is that you know, to be a part of this community, you have to become like us. You have to become us. Right? You have to adopt our norms, our customs, our beliefs. You know, I mean, and again, it could be sincere. Their belief was that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, right? In accordance with their scriptures and their law. Jesus was a continuation of that. And so to believe in Jesus was to uh, believe in Jesus the Jew, right? That was where they're coming from. <laughs> but to this, Paul is saying that the path to God's favor, like God's righteousness, was not through these norms of the Jewish law, but through Christ himself, who gave himself regardless of whatever norms or customs or beliefs people had. Okay. Uh, this new norm would be oriented toward Christ, right? And faith was the sign of this life that was oriented to Christ. Okay, so Paul is saying that his old norms are now being laid to rest. This is what he said. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, my old norms and everything, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, like complete orientation, right? Uh, in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. As we will see in the next chapters and the following weeks, because of this Christ who gave himself for all people with, without regard to their worth, all human norms were now secondary to a life and community oriented in the love of God shown through Christ. So some questions that I have are, have my norms been shaped only by the dominant center or have I been willing to expand my own understanding by engaging with the unknown? Why do we fear being open to difference? What do we lose by giving into this fear? And what can we gain by overcoming it? So implications for our own context. I'm wondering, you know, how are our cultural and societal norms shaped? Who shapes them? What is the source of our own cultural and societal norms? You know, last week we discussed the concept of white normativity. Um, has that affected the lives of different groups in our society? And if so, how? 
And what does Paul's message have to say to us? And so I want to use one concrete example uh, to reflect on. Um, so the slide presentation I sent in the prep materials, they highlight many interesting facts, right? There's been increasing inequality in the city of Toronto. And uh, what I will do, uh, uh, Sir Paul, I'm going to kick you off for a bit and I'm going to share my own screen. There we go. Yeah, th this slide deck, uh, I, I shared this last week. Um, <clears throat> So what we realize is there's increasing inequality, uh, yeah, income polarization. So income inequality has gone up 56% from 1991 to 2016, right? And segregation has gone up remarkably, and especially for uh, the black community in, in Toronto. Uh, spatial polarization, segregation. I mean, I'll just highlight some key ones. Look at this, income inequality from 1970 to 2015. Toronto, it's gone quite up, almost as high as Chicago, okay, but definitely the highest in Canada. Um, income polarization has gone up. Okay, let me... Now, these, guys, these people from a policy perspective, they're wondering what are the causes, right? Income support, labor market, housing market, discrimination, okay? Uh, but what I wanna, yeah, who are the working poor? Uh, this is, these are all very interesting stats. I mean, you can look at it all yourself, but I wanna just highlight a few things. Um, that's right, this is a very interesting slide, I thought working poor percentage and black population percentage in the city of Toronto, okay? So these brown ones have a very high uh, percentage of a uh, working poor population. Uh, and the, these dots represent uh, areas that are high percentage of black population. So you see a definite correlation here between areas where a lot of black people live and where the working poor are concentrated. It's almost an identical correlation. Okay, so everyone sees that. Yeah, black unemployment rates are uh, significantly higher than non-racialized Canadians. Yeah, this, these were interesting things. Segregation, this is what I wanted to focus on. Okay, a social group is considered segregated if the spatial distribution of its members differs significantly from that of a larger population. Okay, so the argument from these stats are that uh, Toronto is a segregated city. Uh, some ethnicities, there's voluntary segregation. Like, yes, we do have ethnic enclaves, right? We see that, Markham, Chinese, uh, Thornhill, North York, Persians, uh, uh, whatnot but we also have involuntary segregation. And that's what I'm uh, focusing on here. Uh, so there's immigrant ethnic enclaves. <clears throat> Black population percentage city of Toronto. So the darker the purples, uh, the higher the percentage of Black population. Okay. And this is almost identical to that working poor distribution. Right. So look at these slides. And let's ask ourselves, how many of us live in one of these uh, dark pocketed areas. In this survey, probably close to zero. Okay, and this is a, a 50 census tracts with the highest populations. Okay, so again, 
the dark areas have a very um, high number and then the golds oh and then the golds are actually the bottom 50 census tracts to so the least amount of black people okay now to give you an example of policy uh, segregation this is toronto's rapid transit network in 2018 you see these subway lines right so the subway lines basically, and then the, you got the Eglinton Crosstown here, and then there's gonna be a Scarborough Rapid Transit, okay? Basically they cut through the wealthy, wealthier and whiter neighborhoods. Whereas the, the old policy that was dismantled, uh, this was approved in 2009 by the province, the city. You see this rapid transit network would have made for a much more equitable distribution of uh, public transit. So, so there have been policy changes that just really um, disproportionately affected. Okay, and uh, yeah, this is a he's a he's a well-known guy. I, one of the McLean's articles featured him. A census map shows black people live in segregated Toronto, and this is what he said. This is called segregation. That's what it is. There's no other word for it. Um, okay. So. Uh, Stop sharing. Paul, we can continue on with uh, the ones that you have. So some questions that I thought about as I uh, was looking at all that data are what do these facts tell us about the, the norms that we follow and the choices we make? I mean, as a society and as individuals, uh, whom have we deemed worthy to be with? What effects have our choices made on groups that we consider the other? Okay. Implications for uh, uh, Paul's gospel for racialized Toronto. Okay, I, um, to go further along Paul's gospel, for him, God ex uh, when God gives a gift, what God's expectation is, is a relationship that's built. But as our lives get uh, continue to grow in Christ, uh, it's supposed to take the shape of Christ. And because um, that is the essence of God, right? The, uh, to come into relationship with God. And so to take on God-like character, right? And so, so God was manifest in Jesus, right? And Jesus was called, and I think the next slide, Jesus was called Emmanuel, right? God with us okay with that's the key word right it's god who's with us the essence of jesus christ is god with us and so when our lives are incorporated into christ like i said that key word in christ uh then we become in turn god for uh, with others right we become god with others when our lives are in christ and in particular we become God with those on the margins, right? those who are left out. I mean, in the Gospels, that is who Jesus went out to and was, was with, right? Those on the margins. And so uh, this question here was, yeah, as people who live in Christ, who are we called to be with? Whom, and then on the corollary, whom have we been avoiding, right? Individually and collectively. 
In the Gospel of Luke, the story of the Good Samaritan, the lawyer wanted to challenge Jesus by asking how to get eternal life. Jesus asked him, okay, what's the most important commandment? And the lawyer gave the right answer, you know, says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and love your neighbor uh, as yourself. And Jesus said, you have answered correctly, go and do it. But then the lawyer, of course, being a lawyer, he's getting all smart and asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Right? And that's when Jesus goes on to st- tell the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, right? This Samaritan man, uh, oh, this uh, man was walking on the road to Jericho. Uh, previous uh, slide, Paul. Uh, to Jericho, and uh, he gets beaten and robbed and left bleeding and almost half dying. And then a, Levi, a priest comes by, looks at him, walks on the other side. The Levite walks, uh, sees him, walks by on the other side. Then a Samaritan, the mortal enemies of the Jews, right? Uh, he comes by and he takes pity on him, bandages him up, pours oil, takes him to the inn and, and tells the innkeeper, take care of him and on my way back, I'll pay double, right? And so uh, Jesus concludes with this question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said, go and do likewise. I mean, the one who showed him mercy in this case, but I think really what uh, Jesus is trying to say, yeah, the one who was with him. That's who the neighbor was, right? A neighbor is those who are with those, especially with those on the margins and on the fringes. And so instead of just uh, who is our neighbor, the real question is, who are we neighbors to? And in our racialized context, I mean, that that map just makes it very starkly clear in a very real, concrete, practical sense. Like, who are we neighbors to? Um, And we need to ask ourselves real critical questions. Why is, for example, that map the way it is? You know, um, uh, what led us, le- led us to make the choices that we make? What leads all of society to make the choices they make, right? So uh, lots of hopefully some things to think about. Here's a summary of uh, a lot of these questions. Okay, what are the norms of criteria or worth by which I've lived? You know, have I ever experienced a revelation from God about God's gift of love given to me without regard for my worth? If so, how has that affected my life, my outlook, and even my sense of calling? What do the facts on the slides tell us about the norms we follow and the choices we make? And whom we, have we deemed worthy to be with? What effects have our choices made on groups we consider the other? As people who live in Christ, who are we called to be with? Whom have we been avoiding individually and collectively? And who are we neighbors to? Okay. All right. Sorry, I think that took a little longer than I expected, but uh, hopefully there's some material for us to reflect with. Um, okay. So, Paul, you can, uh, we can end screen share now. And you can end that recording. All right, so I will, uh, I'm going to actually copy the.